Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Special counsel Jack Smith is ready for trial in the D.C. election interference case against Trump set for May to pick a jury, to protect the jury from Trump's sadistic attacks, and to call Trump's bluff on asserting a good faith reliance on counsel defense at trial. We have a flurry of new motions filed by the prosecutors that will get Judge Chutkin's attention as she is about to have a hearing on whether to gag Trump once and for all. Week two of the New York fraud case of the century against Trump and all the Trumpers continues with riveting testimony of another Trump money man insider, 50 years CFO and convicted tax cheat, Alan Weisselberg, as the office of the attorney general aggressively puts on their case in chief, relying on hostile witnesses that work or worked for Trump, who've already admitted to tax and business record fraud by Trump, and we're only eight days into a hundred plus day trial. Not to be outdone by Jack Smith, Fulton County DA Fawny Willis and her team prepare for the October 23rd trial of at least Ken Chesborough and Sidney Powell with disgraced former New York City Police Commissioner and unindicted for now co-conspirator Bernie Carrick, signaling that he is ready to dump on Powell if given immunity. As the court considers a fresh round of last-minute motions filed by Ken Chesborough to avoid trial or to at least suppress evidence. And Alex Jones rears his ugly head again and threatens to take the fifth if he's subpoenaed to testify against Ken Chesborough. Finally, George Santos is in the news again for all the right reasons this time. Plea deal talks have apparently fallen apart, and instead the Eastern District of New York prosecutors have filed a new superseding indictment to bring the felony charges against him to a whopping 23, with the new indictment using information and confessions obtained by his former treasurer that they stole money from the credit cards of donors, lied on federal forms about obtaining donations and loans from an almost bankrupt Santos at the time, and lied on election forms as well. His defense, according to his statements, is the shaggy defense. It wasn't me. It was the treasurer. All this and who knows what else we'll cook up on this midweek edition of the Legal AF podcast with your anchors, Michael Popak and Karen Friedman Agnifilo, reporting and analyzing at the intersection of law, politics, and justice. Karen, whew, are we going to be able to get all this in today? I don't know. There's so much going on. It's so hard to keep up with it all and decide what we're going to spend time on. Yeah. I mean, uh, you and I, you know, just so people, I think they like this kind of stuff. You know, we start texting each other probably the day before what we, well, when, when we're going to record, just the sort of subject to, we always say, subject to a development that we have to then update our entire list for, like Trump just got indicted, Trump just got arrested, you know, whatever. But we start that and then the rest of the of our team and our production team and the brothers on the uh, will start catching things in the news and updates so that we really try to be as up to date as we can, but also give you a coherent analysis 
uh, of what we think is going on, um, you know, before we get to the show. So, you know, we're texting back and forth and have you seen this and somebody grabbed me that court filing and let me read it and let me pull a letter. And by the time we're done, you know, it takes a village. We have, you know, we've done our own crowdsourcing, crowdfunding of of the information that we need. And then it's up to you and you and I to stand here and deliver you know, <laughs> week it, it, after week. It, it strikes me, though, that legal AF in some ways is more important than ever right now, just because completely understandably, the mainstream media is almost exclusively about, you know, the atrocities and the, the stuff happening in, in Israel. Yeah. And so it makes sense that, that that's all that the news is reporting on that and the, the, the fact that the Republicans can't get out of their own way and elect a speaker so that the House can get back to work. And so you almost will miss what's going on in the legal world, right? The All that's going on with Trump or that's going on, you know, George Sanders Santos was his superseding indictment, uh, the fact that we're about to start a trial, you know, in Georgia, et cetera. So I think legal AF is more important than ever right now. Yeah. Yeah. And let's, uh, let's dive right in. Let's start, let's kick it off with Jack and I'll kick it off with some framing and then I'll turn it over to you for your observations, uh, having been in his chair, having shared a chair with Jack Smith in the past when he worked in your office, um, when you were both young prosecutors. So We've got a flurry of activity activity by Jack Smith, and then what I like to call, and I called it on a hot take, a little make weight by Donald Trump, where he was like, "Oh, we got to file something too." <laughs> so they filed something. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Jack Smith, as as Ben and I predicted uh, on last week's show of of the weekend, we knew that the attack by by um, Trump on and Judge Angoron in the civil fraud case that we're going to talk about a little bit later in the podcast and attacking his law clerk by name and doxing her and accusing her of being in, an, in, a, in a romantic relationship with Chuck Schumer and all the rest of that would be picked up by Jack Smith. And he would find a way to slide it over to Judge Chutkin um, in a filing. Now, I thought it may be in the form of a supplemental filing while the judge is about to consider whether to gag Donald Trump once and for all um, in, so that he doesn't continue to pollute the future jury Hold that thought. We're going to talk about the jury process next, um, and also um, to continue to attack and try to intimidate witnesses, prosecutors, their staff, and their families. And that that has already been fully briefed. There's going to be a hearing on that around the 16th of October with Judge Chutkin. And having now watched what Donald Trump has done since the last time they were all together, Judge Chutkin has ordered that the lawyers actually appear in court for this one. Trump doesn't have to appear and, and likely won't um, in order to discuss the gag order that that uh, the prosecutors have submitted. So I thought, well, here he is. Here's Trump attacking again, trying to intimidate um, uh, people and court staff in this case, and how do you get that in front of the uh, the judge? And the way they did it was there's you know basically Jack Smith and his team, you know Tom Windham and uh, and the others sitting around the room saying, well, aren't we filing something soon about the jurors and protecting the juror? Let's slide it into that one. So they did. They filed a motion to protect the jury. Um, and to use a jury questionnaire in the selection process, you did a very nice hot take on that one. It's a motion. Um, it's a motion for protective, um, uh, protective procedures over the jury. And what the what they're arguing in this motion is that we, in order to have an efficient jury selection process, we should use a jury questionnaire that's developed with you, judge, in your inherent authority to con to um, 
to protect the fair administration of justice in your courtroom. You have the power to do that. We think one thing we should do, even though the jury process is a a few months away, it'll be a May trial of 2024, but let's get there now. Let's have potential jurors uh, fill out the questionnaire that's developed. Let's have you, judge, take a look and decide if for cause any of these potential jurors should be stricken so we don't even have to deal with them in the courtroom on jury selection day in advance. But also, all that information should be anonymous. All The future jury potentially should be anonymous. They're laying the groundwork for both. They've told the court that there is already enough evidence that you should not only make the jury anonymous, you should consider sequestration, putting them up at a hotel and not letting them go home to their loved ones for many, many months. I don't think they're going to go that far, but they they basically reminded the judge, ringing the bell, that Trump's a bad guy and, and Trump has attacked viciously um, and violently uh, prosecutors and their families, judges and their families, staff and their families, FBI and 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 um, and the rest of, and their families, and and potential jurors and grand jurors, and he should not be given any any uh, leeway here to to continue to pollute the jury. So they did it. I, I found it great that they were able to slide in the attack on Judge Engoron's law clerk. That happened during trial, which led to him getting Trump getting gagged by the judge during. During the trial, in the two and a half days that Trump was there, using that and putting that back in front of Chuck, and Chuck and took it seriously on the questionnaire, and said, um, and the jury selection process, and said, let's have quick briefing on this, and then uh, which will line me up for a um, a quick decision. Why don't we start uh, before we move to the next motion that Jack Smith filed about the attorney-client, uh, uh, the uh, the uh, reliance on counsel potential defense of Donald Trump and its impact on document exchange. But why don't you, let, why don't you first comment and critique the filing by um, Jack Smith on the jury protection issues, and then we'll turn to the uh, the document and the defense issues. Yeah, well, so this is a uh, you know I, I, what, what kept going through my mind when I saw this is you know some, a phrase that that prosecutors uh, have to do or do do in um, any time they get ready for trial. And you have to declare yourself ready. You have to say you're ready for trial. And so uh, we used to say, uh, you know, in New York, you you say the people, not the government. Um, It's the people of the state of New York uh, who you represent as a prosecutor. So we'd say the people are ready, you know, and that's a momentous event because you have to answer ready and go to trial. And Jack Smith is essentially answering ready here. He's essentially saying, we are get, we are that close. We are, we are picking a jury. And so let's go into jury selection, judge. And he files a motion where he says, let's do the Let's do this so that we can save time, streamline this, and set guardrails up so that everybody knows exactly what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do. So, for example, it's common for lawyers to um, do jury research, right, and to look up information about potential jurors in addition to what they say in court. And so, but you know, those have some pitfalls because. 
you know, it, like, what are the rules? Are you allowed to look at only open source things? Are you only allowed to look at public facing things? What about asking, you know, asking to friend someone, say on Facebook, or asking to follow someone on Instagram? Or, you know, does that count as what, what about communicating with juries, uh, jurors, potential jurors, etc. And so Jack Smith really says, look, you know, in order to allow for the open source uh, research, because that's what people do, let's just make sure we all know what the ground rules are here and and that you know judge what we propose is that you um is that you know is that you tell both sides that you ca- that you can only look at public facing things and that that any kind of um contact of them by asking to friend or follow, et cetera, will be considered an ex parte communication. So so things like that. And the other thing that Jack Smith asked for was a jury questionnaire. Now, jury questionnaires are not done in every case. In fact, they're not done in most cases. Uh, usually what happens is you just call the jury panel in and, and the judge asks questions. But in a big case where you think you're going to call in many, 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 many more people than you would in a, in a normal case. And the reason for that is there's a lot of people who are going to have a lot of strong feelings about this particular case. And even if you are a fair person or an impartial person in your daily life, you might not be fair and impartial for a particular case because of some personal feelings that you have. And so in a case like this involving Donald Trump, people have very strong feelings on both sides, right? People who are the never Trumpers who who couldn't li- possibly listen to the evidence. And, and if the people or the government didn't prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt could say not guilty because in their mind, it's he's guilty. You know, he's definitely guilty of something. So I'm not going to hold the people to their burden. And that's not fair, right? That's not fair to the defendant. And similarly to the prosecution, there are people who who will stand by him no matter what and not look at the evidence uh, and not convict if the people or the government, I keep saying the people, I apologize, it's such habit, uh, the government proves their case beyond a reasonable doubt. So so it's really, it's hard to find um, people who haven't heard about this case, for example, and who can be fair and impartial. And so that is going to require a lot of people to be called in. And to do that, oftentimes what judges do is they do jury questionnaires. And it was done in several of the Jan 6 trials, including the Proud Boys. And, and certainly in high profile cases, you know, that's how it's typically done. And, and in the federal government, the voir dire process, which is called, you know, jury selection is called voir dire. And, um, and, that that's the that's the kind of term of art, the Latin term, and the voir dire per, per process is done by the judge exclusively. The defense attorney and the prosecutor do not get to question the jurors. Again, totally different from the state, you know, where where the where the prosecutor and the defense attorney um, do all the questioning. So really, what happens is is if you want a question asked to a particular panel of jurors, you would ask the court to. Uh, ask that question. So here, what they're proposing and what Jack Smith is proposing is this way, we can give a list of questions to you, judge, that we would want asked, and so can the defense, and you can decide whether or not you would ask this. And ultimately, what we will do is we will then have a, a jury questionnaire that we will start and, and ask certain questions. And, you know, and, and this will be a proposed questionnaire. And, and this, uh, the motion that Salty just put up there that you just saw, um, it's actually, titled an 
opposed motion, right? It's so what, what Jack Smith is saying is that the defense actually opposes this procedure. So um, I'm not really sure why they would oppose this, but they do oppose it. But so, uh, and, and Judge Chutkin already um, within hours said, okay, Donald Trump, you, uh, you oppose this motion. You have until October 25th to answer uh, and say why you oppose this, because this is so sensible, right? This is extremely sensible to do this and have, it's just, it's just, you're agreeing on a procedure on how it's going to go. And what Jack Smith's team has proposed is that you have people fill out the summonses in advance of the trial, uh, send them out around February, early February, and then have people start, uh, start, you know, start sending those in and the parties would meet before then and they would jointly submit lists of jurors who they agree should be struck for cause. Now, that there's two kinds of challenges that a lawyer can make when it comes to a jury. Uh, it's called a for cause challenge or a peremptory challenge. And a for cause challenge means there's something that you have said or something about you that makes you unfit to sit for this case that makes it so that you, you, um, you know, that, that by law you are not suitable as a juror. So there are some pretty easy ones, you know, so let's say you're not a United States citizen or, you, you know, cause you have to be a United States citizen to sit for a federal case, or let's say you live in a, in a different jurisdiction than the jurisdiction, uh, in, in that you've been called to, that would make you not disqualified or let's say you are you you have a physical ailment that does not allow you to hear even with an enhanced listening device or you can't see you know exhibits or you know even with with accommodations or that you don't speak english and so you won't understand um, what's happening things like that um are are the easy things that that would come out in a questionnaire that both sides would likely agree on um, would disqualify somebody to sit for a particular case like this. But then there are other things too that could disqualify a, a person for cause, you know, somebody who would say kind of what I said earlier, like I could never, ever be fair. I could never, ever listen to evidence about Donald Trump and not render a guilty verdict, no matter how thin the prosecutor's case is. Couldn't do it. I just, I think he's, you know, somebody who's guilty no matter what. That person, believe it or not, is would be a four cause challenge because they are not fit to, they, they won't listen to the evidence. And so you get the picture, right? Uh, there's a million scenarios you could come up with that would create a four cause challenge. Now, there are a second kind of challenge called a peremptory challenge, which are, those are the, those are the challenges that lawyers get to make um, because they have decided they want people um, who, you know, maybe you want people who have families or people who have, you know, who have steady jobs or I don't know, you people, lawyers make all sorts of, all sorts of judgment calls about the type of juror based on mostly stereotypes, et cetera, that you would want, or, or maybe just answers that they gave that you don't like, you know, there's, they seem hostile towards you when, when you're asking questions and they sit with their arms crossed, you know, there's certain, there's all sorts of reasons a lawyer might strike someone from the jury and peremptory challenges. You're given a certain number of 
depending on the charge. And each side is given a certain number and, and you can exercise those peremptory challenges and you, you can basically do it for any reason, except it would, it, there is what there, you cannot do it based on race um, or any other protected characteristic. So if you do do that, um, you will be challenged by the other side and then you'll have to give a neutral reason uh, of why you exercise that challenge. So that's a little kind of one-on-one on jury selection. Um, but so this is the type of thing that Jack Smith is, wants the court to lay out in advance and say, you know, we can all decide based on the questionnaires uh, who is, you know, we'll, we'll identify for you, Judge, which ones we think are four cause challenges that we all agree on. And then we'll also give you our lists of the ones we don't agree on that are four cause challenges. And, and we can weed people out that way. Um, and then when you get you then when you whittle it down to the people who aren't challenged for cause, then you'll bring them in. And that's when the judge would start asking questions. And it's just a way of streamlining things and making it much quicker. And uh, and that's that's what this motion was. And, and as you said, too, you know, the big, big part of this was how that, you know, that the court needs to protect jurors, too, that, you know, look, this is this is. Um, it, another reason to do questionnaires is to protect the identity of the jurors, right? We want to um, make it so that judge, we should order both parties that they shouldn't put the names of the jurors anywhere. Um, that if they conduct research, you know, on them, that again, you will, that if they're talking about it in open court, they will shield the identity of the person and only refer to them by a number. And, you know, to really be clear and careful about how to protect the juror and jury. And, you know, the, there was a, the, a paragraph um, in the motion that I thought was, was great. And then I'll, I'll turn it back over to you, um, where, where, where Jack Smith's team said, you know, there are good reasons in this case for the court to impose restrictions and enforce the district's standard prohibition against publicizing jurors' identities. Chief among them is the defendant's continued use of social media as a weapon of intimidation in court proceedings. I mean, how powerful is that, right? That he's using social media as a weapon of intimidation in court proceedings. In addition to the record before the court, so in addition to the record in this case, um, in front of Tanya Chutkin about, about Donald Trump threatening the judge and Jack Smith and others, uh, just last week, the defendant escalated his conduct and publicly attacked the trial judge's law clerk in his pending civil fraud trial in New York State Supreme Court. The defendant did so by reposting on his Truth Social account, which has 6.4 million followers, a photograph of the law clerk and a United States senator with the baseless caption, Senator's Girlfriend, and then the clerk, and said, "This they are running this case against me. How disgraceful. So this case should be dismissed immediately. That's what Donald Trump posted on, on Truth Social. Uh, Jack Smith goes on to say in his motion, as a result, the judge in that case was forced to issue an oral order that no party speak publicly about members of the court staff, given that the defendant, after apparently reviewing opposition research on court staff chose to use social media to publicly attack a court staffer. There's cause for concern about what he may do with social media research on potential jurors in this case. It's therefore necessary for the court to employ the limited restrictions described above, even before the defendant's most recent concerning con uh, conduct of threats to the court and grand jurors in Georgia. He also goes on to cite E. Jean Carroll, which had an anonymous jury as well. So all the things that we've all talked about, Jack Smith is listening and he made it all part of the record here. Popak. 
but that's a good overview of the jury selection process. We know why he opposed it, because he wants to be able to continue to intimidate future jurors. He doesn't like the allegation. I mean, it, usually when you're when you're you're being asked to consult about a motion, you, you generally the other party sends the motion over. And there's a lot in this motion that Donald Trump's lawyers obviously couldn't agree to, including being called out for the gag order up in New York that Judge Angora had already put in place and suggestions that Donald Trump, based on, as they said in one of their footnotes, ample evidence for the jur- for the judge to not only um, anonymize the jury, make them anonymous, but also sequester them. I mean, that's a pretty... That's a pretty bold statement, which is also backed up by evidence for the prosecution to make that the jury needs to be protected from Donald Trump as we already have an anonymous jury in Georgia. We had an anonymous jury in a civil defamation and rape case by the judge that went unopposed by Donald Trump. Um, And so he's going to get another anonymous type jury, not anonymous to him or the defense, anonymous to the rest of us and to the public and not allow him to out the jury or dox the jury, because all it's going to do is lead to jurors not wanting to be jurors, people not wanting to serve and give their civic duty. And it'll reduce the jury pool to either true believers of Donald Trump um, or those who are just are so completely out of it in terms of their knowledge of, of, of news that they don't know about these things. And you don't want either of those to be overwhelmingly a part of the future jury. So let me turn to the other motion that's getting a lot of attention, and we'll break it down from a legal standpoint that Jack Smith filed, which is to call out Donald Trump and his constant refrain through his lawyers on Sunday morning talk shows and in other places that they're going to use the advice of counsel defense. I don't want to talk about that for a minute. First of all, let me just explain what that is. If you, it, it's not in the federal rules of criminal procedure. It's a, it's a judge-made defense. It's what we call in the in the business a affirmative defense, meaning the burden is on the defendant, not on the prosecution, to make out the um, to make out the defense. And the defense is, I my criminal conduct that you're alleging happened. I did in reliance upon counsel, reasonable reliance, we'll talk about that, upon lawyers, which the argument therefore goes, I can't have criminal intent, I can't have mens rea in my mind or in my heart because I was following the direction and advice of attorneys. And there's a number, as we all, as we know, there are a number of attorneys that have been indicted in Georgia that are also unindicted co-conspirators in Georgia and and unindicted co-conspirators here in the D.C. case of election interference. Lots. Donald Trump was lousy with lawyers, um, giving him all sorts of harebrained advice that he followed or didn't follow, or he got what he wanted. You know, he only listened to people that told him what he wanted to hear. And therefore, you have people like Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, Jenna Ellis, John Eastman, Ken Chesborough, Jim Troopas, and I could I could spend the whole show. This could be one of those skits on Saturday Night Live where the names just scrawl from the bottom and it just keeps going through my entire uh, my entire presentation here. Um, and you know, Donald Trump used to collect generals and put them in his cabinet or his chief of staff position until he fell out of love with them. And he also likes to collect lawyers, especially ones that didn't tell him the truth. He had a group of lawyers that were pay- that were on the government payroll that did tell him the truth, like the attorney general 
um, except for the last couple. The, all the people that were acting as attorney generals, deputy attorney generals, White House counsel, deputy White House counsel, and and most of the um, the brass of the Department of Justice told him and his Homeland Security advisor, and and we could keep going on, that there was no fraud that was determinative of the outcome of the election. And so um, instead, he turned Donald Trump to those who told him what he wanted to hear. Pillow guy, overstock.com guy, supported by Sidney Powell, indicted, supported by Ken Chesborough, indicted, supported by Rudy Giuliani, indicted, supported by Jenna Ellis, indicted, supported by Jim Troopas, should be indicted. So um, whether Georgia or or Jack Smith and his special counsel, the the lawyers are front and center, either because they're co-conspirators, indicted or otherwise, or he's he's saying that I have a defense. It's very hard to have a reasonable reliance on people who themselves have been indicted for criminal activity. I think that sort of undercuts the argument. But that hasn't stopped Donald Trump's lawyers from going on television and saying that obviously Donald Trump relied on brilliant constitutional scholars. I guess that's Ken Chesborough, who's now indicted in Georgia, and John Eastman, who's now indicted in Georgia, um, uh, you know, for for his belief. And we're going to argue that. All right. The reason that's important to Jack Smith and why he wants to know it now and not wait around until either December when Donald Trump has to identify his witnesses and documents for the trial or at some other later period is because if Donald Trump is going to rely on advice of counsel, then he has waived his attorney-client privilege, his abilities to assert the attorney-client privilege as it relates to his communication with these lawyers. And these other lawyers to the government have asserted on Donald Trump or the Trump campaign's behalf the attorney-client privilege because the privilege sits with the client, not with the attorney. The attorney has to do things to protect the privilege. But the privilege is waivable and waived or not by the client, Trump or the Trump campaign. And these lawyers like Eastman, Giuliani, Ellis, Powell, Chesbro have refused to produce documents, just as they did a lot of them to the Jan 6 committee that we'll talk about later, under the guise of attorney-client privilege. Well, there is no attorney-client privilege. It's waived if Donald Trump is going to rely on defense of counsel as a defense at the trial. The government wants to know it now because they're going to be fighting to get those documents from each of those people. And it's a lot easier if the judge has already ruled there's been a waiver. If there's not been a waiver, then we're going to have to go through the what happened in California with Judge Carter in the Central District last year when John Eastman alleged that his documents and communications with Rudy and Trump were all privileged. And the judge, after reviewing the evidence, decided that there was a crime fraud exception applicable because the lawyers, at least the client, uh, Trump, was trying to commit a crime using the lawyer's legal advice as a cover. And there's an exception to the attorney-client privilege. It's called the crime fraud exception, which is exactly what it sounds like. This is the second judge, federal judge, that found that it was more likely than not that Donald Trump committed a crime. Judge Beryl Howell having decided, uh, based on the evidence presented to her, that he did commit, it was more likely than not that he committed a crime at Mar-a-Lago and therefore, attorney-client privilege was waived, and that's how they got all of Evan Corcoran's 
uh, notes and and uh, videos and audio tapes of his representation of Donald Trump from Mar-a-Lago. Judge Carter went first and ruled that John Eastman and Donald Trump were involved in a, in a fraud and crime and therefore waived the privilege and got the documents there. So Jack Smith just wants to know how many hoops he's going to have to jump through in order to get these documents or if it's all going to be solved because Donald Trump is going to be made by the judge to declare now once and for all whether he's going to uh, re- assert the uh, uh, reliance on advice of counsel at trial. They don't want to wait until trial to find out because there's a lot of discovery that they need to conduct to get these documents from these people. That'll be a lot easier if that happens. So that's now been filed. The other side will brief it and the judge will make the ultimate decision. So I guess, Karen, for you is, do you think the judge, Judge Chutkin, is going to find the crime fraud exception applies and or waiver? And more importantly, do you think Donald Trump is going to say, yes, I'm going to assert that privilege or uh, or that defense? Or no, I'm not, we haven't decided yet, Judge, just, just to make Jack Smith work for it in getting these documents. So I, I thought a lot about this, wondering why did he go with the, uh, you know, tell me if you're going to use the advice of counsel defense, like like you go on TV and say it uh, in every talk show, right? That's one of the things he called him out on and and totally and and totally spelled out all the different TV shows he and his lawyers have been on saying, oh, advice of counsel, advice of counsel, advice of counsel. And Jack Smith is basically like, okay, yeah, easy to say it on TV, but why don't you put your money where your mouth is and actually say it in court as opposed to on TV? Because, you know, on TV, you're just saying it because you're trying to get people to believe you. But to say it in court and prove it is a whole other thing because you would have to at least Um, provide some proof of it in order to get the jury charge that says, you know, it's okay to, um, to rely on, you know, it it could be okay to rely on the advice of counsel if it was in good faith, and if you gave them full information. So, um, and so I was thinking to myself, why is he, why is Jack Smith going with the tell us now if, if you, if you're going advice of counsel so we can get all the documents and all the discovery as opposed to the crime fraud exception as, as you so eloquently uh, just described, you know, what that is and, and why. And I, I have a slightly different take on it as from, you know, that it's just a little bit easier to do it um, this way. Um, I think the reason he chose to do it this way, because he really could have gone either way, right? He could have said, I want all these documents and information um, through the crime fraud exception. I think he would have gotten it, I think, to the way the other two judges found it. I think it's pretty clear. The reason, though, is because Jack Smith said there's at least 25 different people who this, uh, this, including family members, who this would apply to if he were to say, I'm going to rely on the advice of counsel. And I want their information too, because there are going to be lots of people who provided the information to lots of different lawyers. And I don't know that all the lawyers uh, helped engage in sort of the, uh, the crime fraud exception or all the family members or all the other people. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, but they don't they don't all fall necessarily into the crime fraud exception, right? Some advice might have been in good faith, you know, little pieces of it, some might not have, or some people might have given information uh, to the lawyers that that weren't necessarily Donald Trump. And so, and so I think that the reason it was done is so that A, he has to say it, and then the discovery process would open it up to all of these individuals, whether or not they fall into the crime fraud exception. Like it's very clear 
that Ken Chesbrough would fall into the crime, you know, fraud exception, or Rudy Giuliani, or John Eastman. You know, it's very; those are very, very, very clear. But I, I, I think that I just think it's it's a little cleaner um, to do it this way as opposed to trying to get everybody's docu- documents, uh, you know, that are tangential to to the crime to the actual lawyer and the crime fraud exception. So I think it's also for notice reasons, right? Jack Smith said this way we know what we're going to ask in voir dire, right? We're going to, if you're not going to use that defense or you are going to use that defense, it'll impact what questions we're going to suggest that are asked. So, you know, that's another reason he he asked for it. But they did say at least 25 witnesses withheld information and communications based on the attorney-client privilege. Um, And so, you know, and so we'll we'll see we'll see if we can get yep. all of that. Do I think just to answer your question? Do I think that um, that the judge is is going to do this? Um, I think it's tricky because you know the Rule Twelve of the Federal Rules of um, of Criminal Procedure spells out when you have to give notice of certain, when, when it's required to give notice of certain defenses, you know? So number one, rule 12.1 is alibi notice or number 12.2 is insanity defense notice and then, you know, so on and so on. And it's, there's a list. And, you know, the attor- the, the advice of counsel uh, defense is, you know, Congress, the, I, I think that they, they might say, look, Congress, if they wanted to rule on this and make it so that you had to give notice, Congress would have done that. And they didn't. And so, uh, you know, if the, I'm not going to make the defense do something and then, and then all they have to do is say, well, I'm not ready. I don't know. I haven't decided. And then what, you can't preclude it. You know, you can't really preclude them from raising this if they decide to do it later. So I, I don't know. I think this would be one of those times where the judge might actually suggest it, ask it, but not require it. Um, that, that's where I think she's going to fall on this one. Uh, Jack Smith is asking for specific information, like you know the, the identity of each lawyer that you that provided advice that you that you relied on, the specific advice given, whether it was oral or written, the date, the information that the you know that the defendant Trump communicated that you know, information that, you know, was caused the attorney to render the advice. I don't think the judge is going to order him to do that because it's really, it's not in, in the rules. And so as a result, I think she's going to say it's, it's discretionary when he, when he decides what he's doing, he'll do it. Yeah. I think she might make him disclose whether he's going to rely on it, but not, but maybe this is the way to the third way, but not require him to give all of this discovery information that the government would normally be entitled to at this particular moment. But we look, we're impressed with Judge Chutkin, how she runs her courtroom. She and Judge McAfee are are making us proud to be lawyers and operate in courtrooms like this one. And uh, there's just intellectual honesty about her rulings and her decision making. And we may not agree with it, but we understand where she's coming from, the case law she relies on, and her analysis. We're going to talk about um, what's going on in Georgia with, with Judge McAfee and Fawny Willis. We'll talk about George Santos, who's now um, having not struck a plea deal, um, obviously, which was reported last month by the government in a, in a court paper, has now been hit with a new indictment, bringing to a total of felonies against him to twenty. Uh, to 23, as some House Republicans from New York are pa- are trying to pass a resolution to have him bounced from the House. And then we'll talk about week two 
um, and some bombshell testimony in the civil fraud case of the century against Donald Trump in New York brought by the Office of Attorney General. But first, a word from our sponsors. Did you know that poor sleep can cause weight gain, mood issues, poor mental health, and lower productivity? Sleep is the foundation of our mental and physical health and performance in our days. Having a consistent nighttime routine is non-negotiable. I know in my own life when I don't get enough sleep, not only am I irritable and grouchy, but my performance in work or in life suffers greatly. Introducing Beam Dream. You know we've been raving about Beam's Dream Powder, their healthy hot cocoa for sleep. And today, our listeners get a special discount on Beam's Dream Powder, their best-selling hot cocoa for sleep with no added sugar. Now available in delicious flavors like sea salt caramel, cinnamon cocoa, and chocolate peanut butter. Better sleep has never tasted better. Dream contains a powerful all-natural blend of reishi, magnesium, L-theanine, melatonin, and nano-CBD to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. A recent clinical study revealed Dream helped 93% of users wake up feeling more refreshed, and 93% reported that Dream helped them get a more restful night's sleep. Just mix Bean Dream into hot water or milk, stir or froth, and enjoy before bedtime. I've personally tried Bean Dream, and it lived up to the hype. First off, it was delicious and just a lovely nighttime routine. And secondly, and most importantly, it helped me fall asleep and stay asleep. The next day, I woke up ready and eager to take on all life's challenges and tasks. Find out why Forbes and New York Times are all talking about Beam and why it's trusted by the world's top athletes and business professionals. If you want to try Beam's best-selling dream powder, get up to 40% off for a limited time when you go to shopbeam.com slash legalaf and use code legalaf at checkout. That's shopbeam.com slash legalaf and use code legalaf for up to 40% off. Did you know that your temperature at night can have one of the greatest impacts on your sleep quality? If you wake up too hot or too cold, I highly recommend you check out Miracle Made's bed sheets. Inspired by NASA, Miracle Made uses silver infused fabrics and makes temperature regulating bedding so you can sleep at the perfect temperature all night long. Using silver infused fabrics originally inspired by NASA, Miracle Made sheets are thermoregulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long. So you get better sleep every night. These sheets are infused with silver that prevent up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them to stay cleaner and fresher three times longer than other sheets. No more gross odors. Miracle sheets are luxuriously comfortable without the high price tag of other luxury brands and feel as nice, if not nicer, than bed sheets used by some five-star hotels. Stop sleeping on bacteria. Bacteria can clog your pores, causing breakouts and acne. Sleep clean with Miracle. Go to trymiracle.com slash legalaf to try Miracle made sheets today. And whether you're buying them for yourself or as a gift for a loved one, if you order today, you can save over 40%. And if you use our promo legalaf at checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. Miracle is so confident in their product, it's back with a 30-day money-back guarantee. And if you're not 100% satisfied, 
satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash legalaf and use the code legalaf to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40%. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash legalaf to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. I was very excited about that sponsor. I, I hope You're I'm so good at that, Popak. I'm so impressed. <laughs> believe so in our sponsors who believe in I, our, I our agree. brand of progressive democracy. I'm still um, complimenting you on your enthusiasm. Thank you. Uh, let's turn to Georgia. Um, if I felt like singing, I'd start singing different tunes about Georgia. We like what's going on in Georgia. Another place where intellectual honesty in the courtroom and the administration of justice holds sway, being led by Scott McAfee, who I learned a lot about and did a hot takeover, who likes to play the cello, including um, Jimi Hendrix-style cello playing. There he is there. Likes to likes to quote Monty Python in his skits when he's denying Ken Chesborough's quotes by, by paraphrasing or or calling his arguments the dead parrot. Um, I've got I've gotten corrected already because I hadn't seen the dead parrot skit in about twenty years, and I had it a little bit backwards about who was proposing in the pet shop that the parrot was dead or alive. But we know what the judge meant, which is your argument is dead. Stop dragging it around like weekend at Bernie's. I think we'll see a reference to that next. This is a law nerd who has a this is a law nerd in Judge McAfee who takes special delight in very efficient and succinct orders. One page, two page, three page, four page. That's all it takes for him to make an anonymous jury to dismiss or deny all the motions to dismiss or to suppress evidence. And he's currently dealing with a couple of things right now um, in particular that we want to talk about, new things. As we get to the October 23rd trial of at least Ken Chesborough and Sidney Powell, two of those lawyers that we talked about in the earlier segment, Ken Chesborough, as he so eloquently put it in his own papers, he was only responsible for the alternate or what we like to call fraudulent electors or fake electors. And she, because now he he's with crazy, it's like that t-shirt, I'm with crazy. And crazy Sidney Powell, who he wants to get about as far away from as possible. She was involved with all of those losing lawsuits and 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 captive team crazy and the break-in in Coffee County of the election equipment and the tampering with election equipment and downloading of, of uh, voter data. That's her. That's not me. He said that in his, in his own papers as to why he shouldn't be uh, tried with her. But he is being tried with her um, and maybe with a few others. We'll see exactly who on the 23rd. And on the 20th of October, we're going to have jury selection as we gave a little breakout legal AF session here today with Professor Karen Freeman Ignifolo on jury selection process. Now we're going to have the state equivalent of that with a jury that's going to be picked from a panel that starts at 900 potential jurors being brought down at, I don't know, 50 at a time until they get a jury in the box, uh, so as we like to say. And in the interim, uh, the judge and Fawny Willis, the Fulton County DA, has got to deal with continued motion practice, primarily by Ken Chesborough. Ken Jesboro um, is arguing that um, some of the evidence against him, like the memos, he has three major memos. That is the basis of the indictment that he wrote, these legal cockamamie memos, that's a legal term, 
for you know half baked constitutional analysis about when the real date is the needs of and we got to have the alternate electors in place by December fourteenth and we got to have these lawsuits ready and then forget all of that let's just pressure Mike Pence and submit these alternate electors and if that doesn't work and then you know he just he each memo he got crazier and crazier and the funny part I learned in preparing for the show today is he lost one of the memos in a hotel I've been in a lot of hotels recently that's I'm pointing to a hotel painting behind me and he lost something in the hotel I had to retype the memo from scratch and send it to Rudy Giuliani and he doesn't like the fact Chessboro, that his emails and his memos that he considers to be attorney-client privilege, we're back to that again, um, are going to be used against him in a court of law. So he's moved to suppress them, meaning have them precluded from being presented against him and used by the prosecutors in evidence. And so Scott McAfee is going to have to deal with that. And Fonnie Willis filed her papers to say, I don't really understand how you get the attorney-client privilege. First of all, the object of the conspiracy is, is the very things that you've done and these memos that you wrote um, on you know uh, on these various dates, the the December sixth memo and the eighteenth uh, of November memo and the ninth of December memo and the thirteenth of December memo. That's the crime. The crime is that you were giving fake and false hope and advice or counsel, and it was political in nature. Her argument is twofold. It's either political in nature and not legal in nature. You don't get the attorney-client privilege when you sort of step out of your role as counsel and you're starting to give political strategy advice. And I understand that. I've had plenty of situations where I've fought over documents where the lawyer seems to have slipped into business uh, a business role and not a legal role. In order to get the attorney-client privilege, you have to have a client. Client has to hold the privilege, have the privilege, not waive it. And the communication that you're having has to be about advice on a legal nature. If you also are, let's say you're an accountant or you're also, a, you have a business, a business uh, position in a company, but you're also a lawyer, you know, sometimes you're going to be attorney-client privilege. Sometimes you're going to be, you're an operational person with no privilege. And so courts have to sort that kind of thing through. Her first position is you can't suppress the evidence. It's the object of the conspiracy. And um, and he was being political, not legal. So the privilege doesn't even apply. Her fallback argument is the one we talked about at length on this podcast and on other hot takes and podcasts, which is crime fraud exception. Because you can't use as the attorney-client privilege the very crime that you're being char charged with to stop that evidence from going into the jury. I think this is a loser of an argument, but you know this is like the ninth motion that Ken Chesborough has filed. All of them have lost in front of um, Judge McAfee, who's currently also considering whether Ken Chesborough gets the gets the benefit of the supremacy clause of the U.S. Constitution to avoid his indictment or going to uh, going to trial, which I don't really see how that's going to work. I get that that there's federal aspects of the election that are in play, but the states are responsible for the administration of their election process, and the states are responsible for who gets selected as federal electors, um, which is the basis of the conspiracy. So I I think that is that also will quickly, quickly die on that. And then Lastly, and then I'll turn it over to you, Karen. Lastly, you've got Fawny getting her ducks in a row and getting her witnesses ready to come in, including a series of subpoenas that she's issued to get people from out of the state to come in and testify. Now, the process for that's a little more complicated. If they're Fulton County or Georgia people, and there's a whole bunch of those, she can just subpoena them herself as an officer of the court. 
If they reside in other places, like Alex Jones, InfoWars, who has a close relationship with Ken Chesborough, the guy who's on trial, so close that they there's video of them touring the Capitol together. On just happened to be Jan six when they decided to take their walkabout about the Capitol while the insurrection raged behind them, while he wore Ken Chesborough a MAGA hat, you know that kind of thing. So you've got Alex Jones who lives in Texas, meaning she's got to take her trial subpoena, take it to Texas and have a Texas court system recognize it and then compel him to testify back in Georgia. Now, most states, this would be a no-brainer, federal or state. Most of the states in the union, mainly the blue ones, will recognize through something called uh, comedy or um, you know the, the, the fact that we give recognition to our sister states when we do processes like this. Um, and they will enforce it and make that person appear in Georgia through a, a, a subpoena. But Texas, whole different thing. When, the gen, when, when they try to get Sidney Powell in and others, the Texas courts were like, no, we're not going to recognize for the grand jury in Georgia. You know, we're not going to recognize. This is me doing Texas. I don't know why I'm using that voice, but I am. Um, we're we're going to uh, not recognize the validity of that particular subpoena for that grand jury. Now, this is a trial subpoena, meaning a judge is behind this. So I think it's a little harder for Texas to deny it at that time. Alex Jones's lawyer, uh, the delightful Norm Pattis, said that he's not going to satisfy I love the I love the combination both misogyny and just complete um, disrespect when he said about Fawny Willis we're not going to satisfy her fantasy by having Alex Jones come into court and testify because he'll just take the Fifth Amendment I don't know what he's going to take the Fifth Amendment about no one has been arguing that he should be prosecuted um, Jack Smith hasn't indicted him he's not even listed as an unindicted co-conspirator anyway and you can't put up the Fifth Amendment just because you, it, it seems convenient to you you got to be actually subject to a potential criminal exposure or prosecution in order to assert that they're also bringing in Rome McDaniels, who is not only when she's not um, uh, Mitt Romney's niece, she's also the chairman, chairperson of the Republican National Committee. And they want Rona McDaniel to come in. They want Boris Epstein, who is the insider consigliere fixer for Donald Trump, who's connected to everything related to the fake electors. They want him to come in and testify. Um, is he going to take the Fifth Amendment? And he lives in he lives in New York or Florida, and they're going to recognize this Texas subpoena. And Lynn Wood, another crazy crackpot lawyer that is apparently cooperating, I believe, with Fawny Willis. But she's getting ready. We are only 13 days or 12 days away, 10 days away from picking a jury. And the first two of the co-conspirators for Donald Trump are going to be tried in front of a Fulton County jury. What do you make right now, Karen, of, of all the feverish activity on Fawny's side and on Chesborough's side and the witnesses and all that from a prosecutor's standpoint. What, do you, what are you seeing? Yeah, so Fawny Willis is doing these subpoenas, these out-of-state subpoenas now, because they take time. It take, uh, it's a lot, takes a lot more time than if you're just subpoenaing someone in your local jurisdiction. So that's why she has to do that now and why we're hearing about it now. I think it's very interesting. It's, it's obvious why she would subpoena uh, Rana or Rona McDaniel, um, because she's the one who received a phone call from Trump and Eastman and, um, and was told about the importance of the fake electors. And, you know, she would provide that testimony, that important testimony for Fani about 
Trump and Eastman and Chessborough, et cetera, and all of the fake electric communications. The Alec Jones one is a little trickier because, you know, <laughs> it's funny when you say, what's he going to take the fifth about? I would say he has to take the fifth about everything because he's a walking like criminal. You know, every word out of his mouth is a lie and a crime. I mean, he's just one of the most horrific people that is out there, you know, with what he was saying about um, Sandy Hook and, and that whole thing was just, it's so upsetting. He denied that, you know, these, these poor little babies were, were viciously shot and killed in a mass shooting. And he really, you know, caused a lot of harm in addition to these families losing their children a lot of harm uh, and a lot of threats, et cetera. And just really, um, he, he's just, you know, to use a, 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 a Ben Mizellus word, he's truly one of the most despicable people there are, in my opinion, uh, on the on the just filth and lies and just vitriol that he spews on his, on his show Infowars that went into bankruptcy solely so he didn't have to pay defamation, uh, um, defamation damages to some of the Sandy Hook families. But, you know, he was, he's a, he is a very important witness for Fonnie Willis, but boy, is he fraught with peril because he's such a despicable person. But, you know, look, he used a bullhorn on January 6th, walking around uh, saying this is the second American revolution. And that's the guy that Chessbro decided to, to hang out with on January 6th while he had his MAGA hat and his bullhorn saying it's the second American revolution. That's, and, and if I was the prosecutor, my summation would be, he wants you to believe, Ken Chesborough just wants you to believe that he's just an appellate lawyer writing memos, you know, and he made a mistake. Well, I'm sorry, if you're marching alongside Alex Jones, you know, essentially marching in the, in the, the march that is talking about you know, a revolution, you're not a lawyer anymore. You are part of the insurrection. So I do think uh, it's, a, it's a bold move to subpoena him because, you know, she also could just put the video on of Alex Jones saying the exact same things with Ken Chesborough right by him. So she can get the same evidence by just putting that video on, but she's calling him as a witness. And that's very bold because he is very tricky, but she's made that, you know, she's made that uh, determination. And, and, uh, you know, she's, she's getting ready. It's getting very close for, to trial. So, um, you know, they're, they're getting down to the nitty gritty on Tuesday. They had a hearing, uh, you know, this week, um, basically regarding the attorney client privilege issue that you talked about. And, you know, it was a two and a half hour hearing and, um, you know, they're going back and forth between whether or not, uh, Ken Chesbro can assert the attorney client privilege vis-a-vis -vis some of the fake electors um, and whether or not she's going to be able to use that evidence. And so they're close, but it's 12, as you said, it's like 12 yep. days away. Yeah, we have a lot to cover. And we're, we're fortunately, the Midas Touch Network, except for the falling equipment, see, stays in the pod. This is what happens, live recording. Uh, the Midas Touch Network is going to do a um, live feed. Um, Georgia is one of the few states, and McAfee has made it clear from the beginning that this is going to be posted um, in real time on either the court's YouTube uh, platform or otherwise. We're going to get the feed, and we're going to do commentary during the day, pre-game, post-game, you know, for the entire length of that trial. Um, we'll to figure out where exactly, because it's going to be a lot of days. Um, but we, we will figure out a way to bring it to you and then bring you the um, updates that you need. Speaking of updates, let's turn 
uh, quickly to what is going on week two, the start of week two of the fraud trial of the century in by the Office of Attorney General for the New York against Donald Trump, all the Trumpers, um, most of the kids, um, and all the executives. Um, and a very interesting tactical move by um, Letitia James's office, which I think is paying dividends already. We have a, this will be over a hundred day trial. There was a lot of action and a lot of uh, the Trump circus, as Letitia James likes to call it, left town after two and a half days. Um, the Trump show left town. But this is a hundred day trial or more of methodical presentation of evidence and witness and checks and bank statements and appraisals and and tax returns and loan documents that would normally bore the bejesus out of a jury. But fortunately, we have a judge because it's a bench trial, meaning the judge is going to make the decision. And Judge Angoron is hanging on every word in the trial. He's already kind of had a little bit of a uh, back and forth with the lawyers, primarily for the defense, about speeding it up, stop being so histrionic and theatrical. There's no jury present. Move move your move your testimony along. And be, some people might say, oh, that's, you know, Angoron's being mean to Donald Trump. By the way, same thing is going on with Judge Kaplan, who's presiding over the Sam Bankman-Fried FTX crypto fraud case. He's 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 been telling the, uh, and they, they have a jury there. He's been telling the lawyers for the defense move it along. I don't like that question. Try it again right in front of the jury. We don't have a jury here. We have a we have Judge Angoron. The first week they decided right away because they had at least two witnesses for Donald Trump, former or current Donald Trump employees sort of in the palm of their hands. That is Jeff McConney, the controller, which is a financial control um, and um, position in an organization in a company that reports usually to the chief financial officer. But Connie already got immunity to testify against the Trump organization. There he is. There, people might think that's um, that's Captain Kangaroo, but it, it's it's McConney. and he testified last year in a criminal case against the the uh, the Trump organization and their entities, in which a jury convicted them of 17 counts of tax fraud. He got immunity from the prosecutor there, your old office, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, Karen. And now, consistent with his testimony there and with the full transcript of what he said, they put him on as witness number three, meaning they reached across. He's also a defendant in the case. He's listed as a defendant because he is a defendant in the very case that he's now testifying in the case in chief for the prosecutor. You usually, the for those that don't do trial work the way you and I do, Karen, you usually want your witnesses to, to build a certain momentum in your narrative, and you usually want your witnesses to be friendly to you because you can control the testimony. You've already rehearsed with them. You've practiced with them. You've gone over it. with You've, you've prepped them to within an inch of their life to testify as opposed to let's grab, a le- let's grab a legal pad and see what this guy has to say, which is often what happens, in, especially in federal criminal cases as well. I've been there as a defense lawyer where it's like, who's the witness coming up in the afternoon? Quick, get me a pad and a document. I got to cross-examine this person. Person. So here, she's she's decided that in order to her for her to make out her case for fraud, Letitia James, and and the fraud, the persistent fraud that's required, and the intent, the the, the fraudulent intent, not criminal, but fraudulent intent and materiality that she's got to establish for these six claims, the six counts that are remaining in front of Judge Angoron, that she needs help from the uh, from the defense. So she's got. 
McConney, who testified for two and a half days. And, and this week, she led off with um, Alan Weisselberg, the disgraced 50-year-plus CFO. Here he is there, who served, I don't know, three or four months on Rikers Island because he's got 17 counts of tax fraud conviction. He didn't have immunity with the Manhattan DA's office, but he got a little leniency in his sentencing because he did ultimately testify, knowing what these guys were going to say or hoping they knew what they were going to say. They called them in their case in chief and called them as what we call hostile witnesses, meaning they could cross-examine them in your main case. Generally, you don't cross-examine your own witnesses. You direct examine them, meaning the witness has to testify. You ask the questions open-ended. They have to answer a question. Cross-examination leads to a yes or no answer. You did doctor the books, didn't you? You did fail to file your tax returns on time, didn't you? Yes or no. And then the judge can actually compel a yes or no answer to a question that has a yes or no response. So that's what they're putting up there. And they're disciplining these witnesses who have already testified, both McConney and, and um, Alan Weisselberg, that tax fraud happened under their watch at the direction of Donald Trump. Uh, has, they've already testified to that. The second week of a trial that's going to go on for months. Um, and they had to because they already testified to that under oath in the criminal case. McConney said he would have been fired if he didn't doctor the books and uh, pay out the bonuses fraudulently and conducted other things that were improper in the persistent fraud case that she's making. And Alan Weisselberg has been a little bit more reticent to throw Donald Trump under the bus, but he's had to admit that information that Donald Trump gave him that was financial in nature was incorrect and erroneous, and that Donald Trump was involved with the preparation of his financial statements and, and his uh, statement of financial condition um, so that Donald Trump can't blame Alan Weisselberg or McConnell alone. And so you had a couple of outside auditors for um, Mazers, which was the longtime auditing firm and accountants for Donald Trump personally and for the company and the others testify about um, fraud in the organization that they were not aware of until later, which led Mazers to depart and fire the client and declare to the world that they were um, their financial statements were no longer reliable. And then she followed it up because you're trying to build momentum as you present your case to, to a judge or a jury. Um, then it's like, okay, let's grab the two defendants who either you know already testify, we know what they're going to say, and, and we'll play that, that, that risky gamble that they're going to come out with compelling testimony. The person that's nowhere around anymore, because I guess the circus left town, is Donald Trump. He's not sitting there trying to intimidate McConaughey. He's not there for Alan Weisselberg. And he's been gagged by Judge Angoron about doing certain things, including attacking the staff. So he's been a lot quieter since he's left town. Um, following that, you know, he also dismissed the Michael Cohen case, so he didn't have to give a deposition there. We'll see Donald Trump maybe, I don't know, three or four more times in the next hundred trial days, but that's about it. But how do you think, um, Karen, the so far, with the first four witnesses, we're about halfway through um, Alan Weisselberg today. How do you think the case is going for the Office of Attorney General and therefore for Donald Trump? 
Oh God, it's going great. I mean, he, they are just methodically presenting evidence, whether it's through the, as you said, uh, hostile witness or friendly witness. The numbers are what they are, and it's hard to, it's hard for them. It's going to be very hard for them to walk away from that, right? You know, there was a, a Deutsche Bank lender who testified and talked about how, you know, he they relied on the statement of financial condition because not just collateral for. To, to issue these loans. And, and so they were able to get that testimony out. They got, uh, they got you know, Alan Weisselberg at first didn't want to say anything about Trump or didn't want to go, you know, say, basically talked about it being him and only him. And once again, trying to protect Trump, but later ultimately had to admit that yes, every year they would show Donald Trump these financial documents and he would approve them. And, you know, it's just, it's just interesting how they're still trying to circle their wagons, but they can't, they can't deny certain facts that, that are key in addition to the objectively verifiable uh, lies that that we've already talked about here. The most obvious one being the square footage of his of his penthouse that he tripled and made it thirty thousand square feet instead of ten thousand square feet. What it actually is. So I think Letitia James is is doing a great job as as New York Attorney General in terms of methodically proving their case that that these were fraudulent, that they were intended to be fraudulent, and that it was you know material. You know th- this information was material that he wouldn't have gotten these loans or these, or you wouldn't have gotten a lower tax, you know, uh, amount if you didn't submit this information. I mean, I don't know how he's going to get around this stuff. So I I do think it's been, um, it's been very well done. I think it was very bold to call a hostile witness as witness number three in the very beginning of your case, because, you know, that, that could have gone sideways, but it didn't. They have control over their courtroom. And, uh, and I, I just think that, that it's going to be a painstaking case, as you said, but but I think it's going to be one that they're going to prove, um, you know, by 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 doing it as methodically as they are. So, you know, it's interesting because even though it's civil, it's I, I like to say it's it's quasi criminal because she's she's using her enforcement uh, her enforcement powers, and she doesn't have. Um, as broad of enforcement powers as say a district attorney in New York. You know, the New York state is comprised of 60 counties and each county has its own district attorney. So, you know, right now Alvin Bragg is the Manhattan district attorney and it's only for the county of New York, which is also known as Manhattan. And she doesn't have jurisdiction, for example, to enforce laws in uh, any of the counties, unless that it is specifically statutorily given to her, or if uh, or if she's gotten permission to um, to to exercise that authority, and so it's very limited her enforcement th- authority. The the attorney general in New York is is mostly civil enforcement. Um, but here, this is this is civil, but it's it's like fraud, you know, and so and it's very specific in yeah. the in the executive law. And I think she's doing a great job um, in her methodical presentation yeah. of this huge sweeping case. A lot of attorney generals around the country have criminal have more criminal powers than she does, but nobody has more power when it comes to stopping fraud and obtaining relief for the people of the state than the person that occupies the attorney general for New York and the, her powers under 63-12 of the executive law. Let's, um, we're going to talk finally tonight about uh, George Santos 
efforts to remove him again from the house. Hard to believe he's still there. And uh, having, having plea deals, a plea deal discussion obviously having fallen apart that was previously reported by the prosecutors as ongoing about two or three weeks ago. Now having the treasurer, his treasurer obviously has been, has uh, pled guilty and has uh, turned a witness for the prosecution. We have a new indictment of him adding 10 more felony counts. Karen and I will talk about that, but first a word from our sponsors. Our next partner is AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I drink it literally every day. I gave AG1 a try because I was tired of taking so many supplements and I wanted a single solution that supports my entire body and covers my nutritional basis every day. I wanted better gut health, a boost in energy, immune system support, and wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. I drink AG in the morning to start my day. It makes me feel unstoppable and ready to take on anything. And on top of it all, I'm doing something good for my body. I'm giving my body the nutrition it craves, and I'm covering my nutritional basis. I've tried a ton of different supplements out there, but this is different. And the ingredients are super high quality. I got started with AG1 because I used to take all these different pills and gummies, who knows what, and frankly, what I was taking was expensive, and I didn't even know if it was good for me. But with AG1, I know what I'm consuming has the best ingredients and also tastes delicious. AG1 makes it easier for you to take the highest quality supplements, period. When I started my AG1 journey, very quickly, I noticed that it helps me with improved digestion, energy, and overall, I just feel great. It's just one scoop of powder mixed with water, once a day, making it a seamless and easy daily habit to maintain. I'm asked all the time about the one thing I'd do to take care of my health if I could only pick one. It'd be foundational nutrition, and AG1 is a top foundational nutrition product. Just one daily serving gives me the comprehensive foundational nutrition I need and supports energy, focus, strength, and clarity with 75 high-quality vitamins, probiotics, and whole food-sourced ingredients. I can't think of another daily routine that pays off as well as AG1, which is why I trust the product so much. If you're looking for a simpler, effective investment for your health, try AG1 and get five free AG1 travel packs and a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash legalaf. That's drinkag1.com slash legalaf. Check it out. All right, we're back on Legal AF. Thank you to our sponsors, without which and our support of our Legal AFers and Midas Mighty, we would not be on the air. <laughs> That's how that works. Speaking of somebody that should be off the air, uh, we shouldn't have to ever talk about again, but unfortunately we do. Representative George Santos from the, I don't know, the Fighting Third District. I don't know where it is exactly. Um, it's a section that overlaps Queens and Long Island in New York. He got himself elected on false pretenses, and he's been he's he's about to pay the consequences for that. There was a plea deal in place. He pled not guilty back in May to the, uh, at the time, 13-count indictment. Now the prosecutors have flipped the treasurer for, um, for Santos. He, um, they're still, I guess they're still working on Sam Mealy, who's another guy that worked with, with, uh, with Santos. And the focus of it is the, the uh, financial and fundraising fraud and the subsequent election form filing fraud, because he's required to file certain election uh, forms and certificates saying that he's raised a certain amount of money, who he's raised it from, um, if he's made a loan to his, his um, if he's made a loan to his campaign, how much is the loan, what's the source of the loan, and those types of things. Well, George Santos just made up all those numbers. 
and or he grifted them and or according to the new indictment, he um, used his some donors credit card information without their knowledge and kept hitting it over and over again for tens of thousands of dollars of donations, some of which ended up in his own personal bank account, some of which ended up supporting the campaign so that they would show numbers on a quarterly basis that were required or that he could get help from the Republican National Committee because he raised, let's say, $250,000 in a given period. If he didn't raise it, he wouldn't have gotten their support. And suddenly, miraculously, a guy that had like $7,000 in his bank account made a $500,000 loan to his campaign. Fraud. Um, And therefore, I think they were trying to cut a deal where he would plead guilty to a felony. I don't think the, the prosecutors in the Eastern District will take less. And they were in talks. They told the judge last month we're in talks with with Santos and 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 his uh, co-conspirator Mealy, uh, and with the the uh, treasurer. Treasurer pled guilty, is cooperating. Those deals fell apart, and the prosecutors, as prosecutors are wont to be, they filed a superseding or what we call an, like an amended indictment, which lists 10 new felonies against Santos. I'll read them off quickly just for, for uh, um, completion. One count of conspiracy uh, against the United States, two counts of wire fraud, two counts of false statements to the Federal Election Commission, two counts of false records to the Federal Election Commission, two counts of aggravated identification theft, one count of access device theft, um, and of course the big tools for the prosecutors, wire fraud, which is usually an email or some other, or wire, um, or money transfer that is using electronic transfer methods, and that that becomes wire fraud. So um, that's pissed off not the entire group of New York Republicans. Yes, there are New York Republicans in the House. And a handful of them have brought a resolution to the House floor um, at present, like today, to try to remove George Santos. Absent from that group is... Um, Elise Stefanik, who the wannabe Speaker of the House, although she was not part of the group, apparently, uh, as between Scalise and Jim Jordan, that is being considered. But she's been the number three in the House leadership. She's no, She's been very open and obvious that she wants the Speaker position one day, but she's not part of the group that wants to lose Santos because they're already having enough trouble. They're not governing as it is with Santos, giving them one extra vote. Lord knows what will happen if they lose another Republican vote. And so just out of sure, uh, pure you know, um, greed and unadulterated lust for power, they're, they're holding their nose and keeping Santos in his chair, despite the fact that the guy's going to go away to jail for a long time for all of these things. Karen, from your perspective, and then we'll sort of wrap up the show for today, what what uh, what do you make of the plea deal falling apart, the response by the prosecutors, and what do you think ultimately is going to happen with one George Santos? But, you know, George Santos, as if he, if he couldn't get any lower, he this this new indictment, boy, is this really uh, made it. So he, I don't think he has any wiggle room whatsoever. You know, George Santos is is really a, a terrible person, and he 
what he really stole from the American people is the right to vote for a person and have them serve you. He is a complete fraud. Everything about him is a fraud. He's lied about everything from, you know, what, whether he's, you know, a grandmother is a Holocaust survivor and, you know, what, that he had certain jobs, that he has certain degrees, that he, I mean, he just lie, 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 lie. His entire resume is a bunch of lies. He's just not who he says he is, not who he held himself out to be. And the voters didn't vote for the person they thought they voted for. But much of that is, believe it or not, not a crime. It's just makes him a phony. And the, so when you get to what is it that he did that was a crime, some of it can be very technical, right? Some of it can be federal election uh, laws that required donor disclosures above a certain amount. Are you a PAC, a super PAC, or an individual, et cetera? And that, that can be a little bit arcane and sometimes technical. And and I, I worried a little bit about that with indictment number one. But, oh, my God, the superseding indictment is just unbelievable in what it's alleging that he did. Uh, I think the biggest thing that is just he can never get away from is he stole money from people, just flat out stole money. He didn't lie and say, oh, you're going to give me money for this, but I'm going to use it for that. He actually stole money. He, when they, when they, when they, he got a hold of the, their identifying information, their, their financial information, their credit card numbers, and he just charged them without permission and took the money and used it to finance his luxury lifestyle. That's just theft. That is bald face theft. So, I mean, that to me was just crazy that that is in this new indictment. And he's already saying, oh, it wasn't me. Somebody else did it. You know, of course, another lie because he, you know, he, he, um, because that one you can't get away from, right? You can't you can't steal money and then somehow say, "Oh, I thought I could do it," or you know, it's a technical thing. I mean, that's just like I said, that's just pure theft. So, so he's going to try to blame somebody else for that, um, but I don't think he's going to get away from get away from that whatsoever. But you know, the the rest of the indictment also just showed the extent of what his fraud was, right? It talked about how, um, in addition to stealing people's credit card and bank information and stealing money from them. He also lied about how much money he had in just documents in order to get matching funds from the um, Republican National Committee. And he just would make up numbers on on pieces of paper. He'd say he had $500,000 in a bank account when he had 7000 And, you know, that's going to be easy to do to prove that that's either true or not true. Um, sounds, and- like Donald, sounds like Donald Trump. <laughs> you, you know, they reverse engineer numbers. Like, well, how much do I need in order to get that bank loan? Four billion in net worth. And then put my numbers down as four billion and let's jack up the price. Santos, how much do I need in order to get the support of the RNC? 250,000 this quarter. Put it down. I'll put, I'll put down a loan. You don't have that money. Doesn't matter. Put it down. We'll figure it out later. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're two peas of the pods and they use the same language. Santos is like, it's a witch hunt. It's not a witch hunt if you're actually a witch. If you're, then it's just a hunt. And that's where we are with George Santos. But I don't think the Republicans, first of all, the, 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 the five uh, New York Republicans that seem to have grown a conscience um, who are bringing this motion, it's going to go down in flames. There's no way. They can't even pick a speaker. They're not going to like throw George Santos. It got some press. It was interesting before we went on the air to read about it. It's not going to go anywhere. He, he's going to, until the people, uh, until he's indicted and taken away in handcuffs, 
<clears throat> and, and for pretrial detention or whatever it's going to be, um, and or he is defeated, which he's he's bound to be defeated by this district. I can't imagine this district voting for this guy again. I mean, I think anybody could run there and, and win. But I think Ben's from this district. Yeah, we should make. I don't want Ben to leave Midas Touch, though. I mean, we keep saying Ben, Ben for Congress, Karen for president, Popak for attorney general. It's great. I like what I'm doing. <laughs> I don't want to do any of that. I want to do what I'm doing here with you every week and midweek. So we've reached the end of this midweek edition of Legal AF as I run run to try to catch a plane to return to New York. Finally, I've been on the road for the last week and and um, but having a blast though uh, doing these remote locations and and uh, I think it's the second midweek I've done with you while I've been on the road. But mm-hmm. I'm returning home and I'm looking forward to it. So. Um, Karen, always a pleasure, friend, colleague. Um, I can't wait for our Wednesdays to roll around. Saturday, uh, join Ben Micellis and me as we do the weekend wrap-up for Legal AF. And of course, along the way, we've been, for those that don't have the stamina to listen to an hour and a half of Legal AF, we've been dividing our podcast into clips. Uh, We call them little potlets. And we've been putting them up um, to get a new audience for people that are are doing Midas Touch, but they don't really know about Legal AF. There are people that don't know about Legal AF. It's a surprise. Uh, But this gives them a little taste segment by segment of what Karen and I or Ben, Karen and I do. And so we're doing that. You might see that. It's not new content necessarily, but it's really for different audiences, for people who haven't had a chance to see our entire podcast or missed a segment or want to learn more about us. If you want to support what we're doing, it's really, really easy. We start with the sponsors and their products because they're advertising, because they're in business and they help us and our and our cause here. We appreciate them. Second way, the rest of it, it's a lot of it's free. Free subscribe to the Midas Touch YouTube channel. Help them get to 2 million. The bigger they are, the more your voice is heard. And you just like click and you're free subscribe. I mean, there's other, there's other places and ways to donate. There's the Patreon account for Midas Touch and you can go on for that and get some special content. We're considering doing one for Legal AF come the new year. Um, we have that. And then there's, um, there's uh, listening to us on our audio versions of this very podcast and go back and forth between the video and the audio. That helps with the algorithm. Therefore, the ratings, it keeps us on the air. And then we've got lovely merchandise. If you want to show your support for the show, we've got Legal AF merchandise. We've got a link there for it at store.midastouch.com. We've got new logos and old logos and different styles and shapes and colors, and you can mix and match. It's all up to you. And that's another way to show and start a conversation. Every time I wear a shirt that has legal AF on it, even if they don't recognize me, (laughs) it starts a conversation and usually a positive one about our democracy. It's funny. I was, I'll leave it on this note. I was traveling. I've been traveling and I was sitting, having a lunch at at a place in California and I heard another table. I wasn't eavesdropping. They're just sort of talking right next to me. And it was interesting how they analyzed really right on the, right on the nose, the, um, Things like Hunter Biden and uh, uh, and the and the focus on Hunter Biden and why are they, why aren't we going after the Trump kids and just listening to them? I don't know if they're on the Midas Touch Network or Legal AF, but you know what we're doing is important because it it starts a conversation and lets people have a healthy dialogue and conversation, um, which is what we're supposed to be doing in this country. It's not supposed to be, that's my enemy. It's supposed to be, that's my fellow American who has a different opinion or political view than I do, but we can have a 
um, a conversation that's respectful at the end of the day. That was the social contract that I signed up for as a young adult and that, I, and that I'm going to continue to try to reinstall or reestablish here on the Midas Touch Network. We sort of have lost that. That is not your enemy wearing red. That is your brother and sister or fill in the blank that believes something differently. The problem is the other side often doesn't feel the way that I just said, but we've got to get back to loving patriotism and loving this country and keeping it together and not finding ways for political uh, benefit and political um, um, advantage to see the other person, demonize the other person. It's easy for me to say it. I'm, 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 in, I'm up against the headwinds on this network of Donald Trump and those that want to cling to power because they want to divide this country. But we'll just do our part every week on the Midas Touch Network on Legal AF. I'm bringing you facts, analysis that we believe in good faith as intellectual honesty, and we don't blow smoke or sunshine. So until the next episode of Legal AF, midweek, end of week, hot takes by Karen, me, or Ben, and a shout out to the Midas Mighty and the Legal AFers is Michael Popak and Karen Friedman Niffalo signing off for today. 